0: No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. I am Adam, joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Ralph. Ralph, how are you doing?
1: I am in a delightful state of cat-like readiness. All right. Because the world just calls upon us to do that. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Uh, It's been a minute since I have been able to be available to record a podcast. Yes. And I've told you this before, but it's, it's to some degree like eating. If I don't do it enough, like you start to miss it. I feel malnourished. And then you, which is you know, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Right. I've been gone. I'm excited to be back.
1: That's good. And you've been on adventures, and we'll hear about those adventures. Somewhat around this podcast, I'm hoping that our listeners will be able to uh, tune into some uh, very interesting guests that we've had come through, talking about everything from uh, traveling beaded dolls from South Africa with uh, Paula Thompson uh, to, uh, Tanya Rashid's discussion of, uh, doing journalism work out of the largest brothel in the world, which was really fascinating.
0: So we have a lot of content we have a lot coming of content. your way yes. that's sort of been, been put into the can. Um, so I visited a, another world,
1: literally another world, another world, um, that used to be a soap opera, you know? Did it? Yeah, I didn't I was, visit that another world. <laughs> I don't think. I'm pretty sure. I, I was just going to cheat here, look up, and see uh, when it ceased existing. Oh, 1999. It ran from 1964 to 1999, and I seem to remember it had the most serious, somber, and now another world. You know, mm. kind of way of getting started. I
0: can imagine this being the introduction to where I was. So Sorry. I, I visited uh, what is called. So I was in Tucson. On a visit for a NSF grant-funded workshop mm-hmm. for educators that focused around equity and maker spaces. Uh huh. Fascinating conversation. A great group out of the University of Oklahoma. Or, hey, so, sorry, University of Arizona that so was
1: hosting it. What are makerspaces?
0: That's a great, this is, this is. <laughs> if you want to get into one of the, the biggest discussions oh, really? of the conference is ah. what is a makerspace, okay. how, how do you define a makerspace, and who you defines were
1: have, a makerspace. Yeah, I thought you were going to have the elevator speech version, but that's okay, too. There's, it's just, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, um, do you want to go there? Do you, no, no, it? no, we'll get we'll okay. get back to that.
1: <laughs> right. If it doesn't get answered in the, you throw me off. in the middle of the international visit, then yeah. we'll get
0: there. Um, It was hosted... About an hour northwest, I believe, of Tucson, in a town called Oracle, at a place called the Biosphere 2. Are you familiar with the Biosphere 2?
1: Please tell me about the Biosphere 2. (laughs) The
0: Biosphere 2. Do you want to know... Why there's or why it's called Biosphere Two? Absolutely, yes. Because the Earth was the first biosphere, and ah. so this is Biosphere Two. It's like it, it's it's got an inside joke within the name itself. So the the Biosphere Two, from my understanding, um, was a uh, philanthropic-funded idea to create a uh, a, a second space. That would allow for an entirely closed, uh, atmosphered ecological system basically. And so, inside this space, think you know, uh, Shore biodome, right? Right? So, research scientists lived in this space. There's multiple different times in which it happened, but the longest was for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside this space, there's an ocean and a rainforest and animals. Uh, and, uh, and all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> okay. And this was a sort of a early 1990s experiment, which, uh, there were some scientists that lived into it for a couple of years and they did like a second one, but it was much shorter. I believe it was like a couple of months or something like that. Um, and now it's sort of this, uh, this tourism destination. Uh-huh. Uh, on the side of a mountain 20 miles from the nearest town.
1: By by the uh, way, the the other allusion I think you would make to this is something from one of our previous podcast episodes which was the opening sequence of Brigsby Bear. Yeah, yeah. Cuz if you recall, they they had hermetically sealed their child in, convinced that the right. apocalypse had happened and that they were everything that they were doing was remote control contact over the internet with people because the because the, the earth was too poisoned. Yeah. But yeah. So
0: So now this space just I mean that you can you can go visit it, you can get a tour of it. It's beautiful uh in terms of the landscape, sort of being on the on the on the side of the mountain and the Catalina foothills. Um, but they've also got this executive uh retreat center that, you know, can host small gatherings and conferences and has little casitas that that you can have guest stay in and so that's where I stayed for three nights was in a in a little casita next to uh,
1: the largest closed system ever created <laughs> that's that's amazing that's really good did you ever look under your bed to see if there was a giant seed pod that was going to this is this is all an allusion to uh, uh, the science fiction film where the seed pod basically takes you over and one day you're simply replaced by yeah. the seed pod version of you <laughs> so all right well that sounds exciting
0: well and I couldn't stop thinking about I imagine. Like uh, someone mentioned, one of the attendees mentioned while we were there that it looked like a bad George Lucas film. So Google Biosphere Two, and you can get a sense of of what that means. But it's a, it's a really interesting, fascinating place. And all I could think is, man, th- this seems like a place Ralph would go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I are, are you into like? Uh, and this has nothing to do with aliens or extraterrestrials well, I, or anything like yeah. that. But it, but it's a it's a sort of fascinating idea of this uh, world within a world.
1: I yeah concept. I mean, I think it's interesting it should probably be called uh, B- Biodome the 2nd since it's the son of the biodome right yeah. so that would rather than biodome 2 but uh, but yeah Biosphere I mean, 2 Yeah Biosphere II. but the the idea of you know kind of sealed off spaces like that is really kind of fascinating in a way um sort of like every spaceship movie you have ever seen Um, Although I wouldn't compare it to to say it's a a bad George Lucas film because I think a bad George Lucas film was parts one, two and three. (laughs) He's already done that. Um, But yeah, no, I, I think the and plus there, you know, it also demonstrates that kind of commitment we had to experimental spaces following from the uh, there's a, a a philosopher engineer designer named buckminster fuller who's yeah. you know very much out of the public limelight now but he invented the geodesic domes yeah. that we see everywhere and so he had this idea about you know engineered life that had to do with you know potentially um exploring other planets and things like that so very much in line with i think the thinking that went into biosphere so so does, so was your experience such that you would want to go back there? Is that something you would want to experience again?
0: Um I'm really happy with the singular experience that I had with it. Not saying that I would dread going back by any means. Uh, but it's a it's a really cool unique story that I get to tell that I went to once. Um mm-hmm. You know, I unfortunately I got there a little bit too late and missed like the full blown tour of it, uh-huh. uh, and so other people who probably saw more of the biosphere have a have a much richer uh, desire to probably want to go back. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I can't I can't say it's it's something that deep within my soul says I must make it back. But I don't know <laughs> how, how many places I don't know if there's a lot of places in the world where I'm like man I gotta go back. Yeah so,
1: yeah yeah it's, it is kind of. But like, I would highly
0: yeah. recommend it if you happen to find yourself. Mm-hmm. In or around the Tucson metropolitan area, <laughs> and you want to take a take a trip. It's it's sort of in between Tucson and Phoenix. It's in you know between an hour and an hour uh-huh. and a half from whatever whatever town you're
1: in. So yeah. I've always li- I like the idea of when they call something a retreat. You know what, yeah. what exactly is it a retreat from? What is it that you're this escaping? is
0: This is as much of an escape as you could possibly think. I mean, you are on the side of a mountain. Um, at least for me I had no means of transportation because I was just dropped off there. Um you know 20, 20 minutes away from any new civilization. Um, no uh no light like there's no street lights because this is a big stargazing area of the country too. Oh, okay. So it's it's really really dark. The stars are beautiful at night. Um lots of wild uh animals are around. By when I was there for you know, maybe a total. So in two hours, I saw deer, cows, um, uh, rabbits, uh, a snake, a lizard, um, the Jacintas, which are these wild pigs uh, uh-huh. that everyone's uh-huh. deathly afraid of. Because uh, they're crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is what I hear. Uh-huh. Uh, I saw them one, one evening sort of running around. So it,
1: it's it's an interesting, I mean, it is very retreat-like. Yeah. So, but, but wasn't, uh, if I recall from the second biosphere experience, it turned out to be reasonably unsustainable. Right. Because of the buildup of CO2, I think is what I heard.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they... The, I, from my understanding, yeah, there's a limited oxygen supply, um, and I think there's sort of a weird story. Again, this is sort of from, from my googling, but the second time they tried to do the experiment, the scientists from the first experiment actually tried to uh, destroy the second people's experiment <laughs> by by opening the seal. Um, oh no! So so yeah. So if you, so if it get. And there's been, I feel like there needs to be, you know, a, a Netflix-like documentary that looks into Biosphere mm-hmm. uh, 2, not Biosphere 1. Um, but uh, Because that's what all
1: the rest of the documentaries are about. <laughs> right, exactly. They're about Biosphere yeah. 1 and the disastrous yeah. state of it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, but but there's you know a handful of books that have been written uh and a lot of them from the scientists that have that live there and all sort of bring their own perspectives and i think if you could narrow it down to like i mean there there are two main things that Destroyed this from really being successful. One was there's the scientific side of things, but there's also like the sociological side of things too. Right, and I think they just you know the, the, the there was a lot of issues into the uh, into the culture that was forming within it as well. And I, I I remember reading like one quote you know of a scientist basically saying like really what we did was starve ourselves and suffer together for two years. <laughs> you know,
1: um, I was gonna say there's something about the Stanford Prison Experiment that that has to do with this too, which is when you put people into uh, this, you know, are you familiar right. with this standard? Yeah. So yeah. when you put people into like artificial, particularly artificial relationships where some people are in power and others aren't, it starts pushing them to these extremes almost immediately. And and regular rational people are suddenly capable of intense cruelty, yeah, just because they're taken so much out of the context of their day to day life.
0: And and speaking of people that are that you know that that have a have an inclination towards uh, relative intense. Cruelty. Uh, someone who <laughs> it, who was involved in the second mission, believe it or not, was Steve Bannon.
1: No. Yeah.
0: So he was hired at one point to run the Space Biospheres Ventures uh, and sort of be the finance manager for it. So, and and again, this is early '90s stuff. So, uh, so there's there's you know there, there's a name you haven't heard in a while. That's awesome. Crop uh, up, but yeah, he was involved with this too. So.
1: Oh, there's a Vice piece about it I'm going to have to read. Oh, is there? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's really, Biosphere 2 began in fear of the apocalypse. <laughs> and, you know, what's really funny about that is, like, seriously, when we started this conversation, I actually looked up the apocalypse page on Wikipedia yeah. <laughs> because there's something about, like, you know, there <clears throat> when, when, um, when there's talk, like, on Science Friday and NPR about where we're going to go in the future, there's, like the idea of colonization of other places. Like, we basically, sure. and the argument is that we pretty much have all the technologies we need right now to actually start colonizing Mars. I mean, it would be pe- pushing people to the extreme, but we know how to do everything that needs to be done. The question was whether what we're doing is expanding colonization or actually creating an escape hatch right. for the destruction that's being done to Biosphere 1 right yeah. now. So there's an interesting tension between those. Yeah. So...
0: Well, if you want to go test out what it's like to live in a, you know, in a cl- closed-off space in another atmosphere,
1: there you go. It's completely appropriate, by the way, that we are talking about this on our podcast. That's why <laughs>
0: I couldn't stop thinking about you. See, <laughs> it now perfect. you understand. I told you. I, 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 I told Ralph a couple days ago. I said I have a story, but it has to wait because I think it's a perfect story. It is for a the perfect podcast. story. That's it's right?
1: yeah, and I'm 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 impressed. There I'm impressed for, uh, for the whole experience of it. I can't, you know, I, for, I think for a lot of us normals who don't get to go on retreats like you do, you have a much more exciting <laughs> life, you know, all we do is go from place to place imagining what we're going to do when the zombie apocalypse happens, Yeah, you know, sort of like how you're going to, and this was, I actually traced this all to the to the first Dawn of the Dead film when, well, actually, all the way back to I Am Legend, which is a novel it's all based on, because I remember when I first read it when I was a very impressionable little kid, and the idea that you were the last person on earth has this appeal to it, right? Right. And And, you know, what are you going to do in order to make sure that you're able to survive under those circumstances? It's really kind of like engaging mental fantasy. Yeah. Well,
0: and so to that point um, of uh, not being able to go on retreats, uh, uh, the thing that I will give a lot of credit for – even though I don't have like a strong desire to go back is like it's way more fun to go to that place than go to another conference hotel yeah. in the same five cities in which all, you know, conferences are held. Um and being stuck there, you know, paying uh $25 for a breakfast buffet. So I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm super excited that that it was held in a really really unique place uh-huh. that, uh, I would, you know, I'll never forget going to the biosphere too for multiple reasons. That's, that's,
1: that's really, uh, that's very impressive. It also it's kind of funny how it connects. I'm going to be a little weird here, but the, uh, I've been listening to, uh, a, uh I think I may have mentioned this to you maybe a long time ago when we talked, uh, I've been listening to a, uh, book by, a, a Vietnamese Buddhist priest, uh, Tak Nhat Hanh, and, um, um, almost, almost through it all. It's not very long, but I have very short time to listen to it. But uh, he's talking about walking meditation. Right? Yeah. Um, and actually, I thought of you because you had talked one time about how you try to pick routes that where they're visually pleasing when yeah. you have to walk across our campus. And you know, we're we're kind of lucky in that campuses are usually pretty nicely maintained yes. places. So we have a lot of advantages that people who don't have that environment have. But uh, but but a lot of these ideas about. You know, sort of like when you're when you're out of context, when you're on a retreat or something like that, that it gives you this space where you can sort of like reassess what your brain is doing. Totally. And uh, there's something very appealing about that. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's been a, an interesting experience um, to, to think about. Is there something I could do to actually get the kind of focus that that meditation promises just somehow work it into your busy busy schedule so that you're not busy for no purpose yeah
0: know? and part of me i mean i really didn't know where i was going before i got there and i showed up in the dark uh which is terrifying because again as i mentioned there's no streetlights out there i think if i had done a little bit of more pre-prep into exactly where i was going exactly what it was i would have been able to also sort of mentally prepare myself for that i don't mm-hmm. feel like i had and i just stumbled upon a place by accident and wasn't you know in the space to do that as well. But um, you know, do you want to talk about maker spaces? I'm happy to do. Yeah, so. I would love yeah, to talk about maker
1: spaces because I think they're complicated, okay. but they're really important.
0: So, uh, so a maker space, um, in its formal sense, is a physical location for an idea which is called the maker movement, and the maker movement is getting into the idea of you know, uh, f- physically creating again or, or moving people towards doing things like that. So oftentimes what you will see in a maker space are things like, um, uh, 3d printers is a, is a pretty prominent one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, uh, Arduino boards that you can program. Oftentimes you'll see, uh, uh, sewing machines and kits that help do types of crafts like that as well. Um, you might see virtual reality spaces like those are the things in which you usually see within a within a maker space as well. Uh, you might see uh, vinyl cutters and you know woodworking depending on how elaborate the space is. Um, but what we've seen is a lot of these maker spaces have started to crop up at uh in educational institutions in public spaces in which you can buy a membership to kind of go to in one of these maker spaces um and then libraries have been a big a big supporter of this idea of the mm-hmm. makers movement as well um the interesting thing about it is uh they seem to they've you know without any rhyme or reason? I mean, you think about the idea of of making, and it seems like this incredibly open ended idea of what this space could actually be, and what it could do, and what, could, what it could bright, could provide to its community, and yet it's it's fairly quickly kind of homogenized into these are the types of things that you're going to likely see within a makerspace as well, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that has to do with um, the fact that there's a, you know a, 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 a select few of people uh, and companies that have come out of Silicon Valley that have started to sort of define exactly, you know, if you're going to put up a maker space, you need to have these types of products. And, oh, by the way, we produce these types of products and buy from us <laughs> and sort of buy the yeah. maker space in, in a box and, you know, use our our, our pre- programmed curriculum to do so or what, what, whatever sort of baked into the the model itself. And that's where it's, yeah, I think it gets really interesting specifically around the, the question of equity or even what, it, you know, should, how, how strictly do we need to define what a maker space is? I think with a major conversation mm-hmm. that, that we, that we had, um, what's interesting. So, uh, so one of my, uh, sort of educational heroes or educational technology heroes is a guy named Seymour Papert.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, develop, help developed, helped um, develop the computer language that allows you to program Legos, um, uh, Lego robots, uh, and, and did a lot of work towards teaching kids how to understand computer programming. Uh-huh. And um, I, there's a book that he wrote. Oh, I can't remember which one it is. Um, let me look up Papper. Pepper books real quick so I make sure I get the right one. Uh, It's in the one called The Children's Machine. Uh, Mindsor's is the other one. But in The Children's Machine, it's sort of about this idea of computers being brought into uh, educational spaces. And one thing that he follows is how different computers were when they were something that was sort of a object within the classroom, mm-hmm. um, you know, and usually, uh, managed by, you know, a handful of different teachers that are interested in sort of playing with new, new things as a teaching tool. And then they were moved to a centralized location within a school, like a computer lab. And all of a sudden there was a space in which you went to, right. um, to use the computer as well. Yeah. Uh, and that it was a space that wasn't necessarily integrated with the rest of the curriculum that's happening, you know, with Within the classroom itself, and just like that, that physical uh, moving had a lot to do with changing, the, reframing exactly what a computer does. Right. And so I've sort of thinking about the same kind of connection as as we think about maker spaces versus just having something that does making. Yeah. You know, within arm's reach of you, sort of wherever you are, within the context of an educational space. You know how how different it is. I mean, the fact that you know, for us, if we were if if you or I were wanting to get an access to you know, uh, vinyl cutter or, or, or uh, 3D printers. We'd have to go to a very specific spot on campus, you know, versus just something that's that's sort of a toy that that anyone can play and sort of interact with, mm-hmm. uh, being in a in a classroom itself.
1: So, anyways, that's that's you know, it, two things come to mind um, in in the context of that. One is that in some ways. Um, if you think sort of like in long-range history, um, the idea of making things had this important kind of craft guild history for a long period of time. And in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was replaced by this kind of mechanization. And the, the term that a lot of cultural studies people use is Fordist or mm. Fordism. And the idea was that um, the people who were working on it, um, if, if, say, you know, picture building a car on an assembly line, took, you know, 800 steps. You would have 800 people on the assembly line and each one did one thing as the... the whatever it was the object you're working on slowly moved by so you're thoroughly alienated because you don't know the 799 other things you know that one thing you do you know they want you to buy the car at the end and those are the two things you definitely know so so it's seen as this move of alienating people from you know making things there is no making of things there's the 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 small contribution you make and the thing you buy at the end so it's, it's, it's in one sense kind of hive-like because it's the collective effort that is the maker sure. space, but at the same time, every individual is kind of alienated from the whole product. So being able to fabricate, you know, to make things in a space like that as an individual is really appealing, I yeah. think, in a lot of ways for that reason totally um, the other interesting thing that it makes me think about is how our how we think about how computers serve a function in our lives because they've changed so much over time yeah. as you're talking about this i'm thinking in terms of my ancient history the first time that i learned computer programming it was very funny cuz you talked about a separate space cuz the computer was big it was the size of yep. three refrigerators right yep. and so you had to go to the computer lab yeah. and it was one computer and so i had to learn batch fortran programming <laughs> which I was really bad at, I have to say. But it was, you know, flowchart, you know, you'd do your little punch cards and you'd yeah. do your little instructions and they'd run them through the computer and it would stop and not do what you wanted to. So then you had to go back through all of your individual steps to figure out, you know. So this was probably 1977, something like that. When, when, and So this would have been even before computers would have been, you know, separated out into classrooms. But this was the computer that ran all of the attendance, ran all of the you know, whatever data they were collecting at the high school that I was going to uh, all went through there. Yeah. So it's just interesting so we go from that to kind of the early stages when a computer is just seen as this infinitely flexible maker product right um to now where it you know it's the window and consumer product
0: yeah. yeah 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 and then that flip from a you know a, a thing that helps you produce towards a tool in which you almost purely consume on is uh is really interesting.
1: Yeah. Or you want to get away from it and back actually move as much as possible to a mobile device like a phone. Yeah. You know, or a or a tablet or something like that to replace it. So it's it, it's just really interesting because of of how much that's evolved. It, I always laugh about when they were trying to market uh, Apple II computers to home use. Yeah, and you saw these pictures of like mostly women with beehive hairdos looking at their Apple II computer on a. Counter in the kitchen looking up a recipe. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. just like this. And it's, I mean, it's a real thing because, of course, we all use this to look up recipes for everything all the time. But it just never, you know, that kind of, I always like those fantasy images sure. of what it's going to be. Well,
0: it's the same thing with like when Google Glass, you know, came onto the scene and whenever that was, 2014, 2015, sometime around there. And it was like just the, all you were doing was watching YouTube videos like very close to your eye. You know, but like, <laughs> like you could do much more with it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but uh, it was this insane expensive technology. that.
1: Yeah, I think it's always important to pay attention to the technologies that fail around you you know the, the ones that like 3d television right yeah it comes it tries to find a market and it kind of fails to do so smell a vision <laughs> exactly well yeah or uh, well I mean 3d but it keeps coming back yeah. and coming back and coming back um, there was a, a website I don't know if it still exists where Bruce Sterling used to who was you know an early I don't know if you're familiar with him but he's one of the first people who started writing about hacking and okay. how that was transforming culture he's a science fiction writer too he worked uh, he co-wrote a novel with William Gibson called called The Difference Engine, which was, uh, it was a steampunk novel that was basically about what happened if computers had been invented in the 1890s, right, which, you know, kind of world transforming under the tech, before the integrated circuit, but that you could do complicated things with, um, it's kind of like thinking, the, the descriptions of the book it comes across as like an enormous weaving machine that's able to do calculations. Yeah. But Sterling got interested in what he called the dead media project. Um, and what he was doing was um, putting together basically the history of either technologies that failed or all of the intervening technologies that came between somebody's idea and whatever became something people normally used. Mm. Um, and it could be because of a um, psychological Problems. It could be because of physical problems. Um, thinking about sort of the history of portable phones, yeah. phones and cars. Uh, there's an X Files episode where at one point David Duchovny takes out an early cell phone, and it looks more like a walkie-talkie. It's like backpack size on the side of yeah. his head, and it's funny to see how that uh, how that happens. But so the Dead Media Project was something Sterling did where he was you know looking at obsolete and forgotten communication technologies and trying to accumulate knowledge about them because once they've kind of failed, we want to forget them we kind yeah. of make them go away so yeah
0: well or even look at I mean you know how we originally thought about what, it, like you're mentioning, the way a technology was going to be utilized. And uh, I mean, it's fun now. I've I've gone back and rewatched the the Steve Jobs introduction of the iPhone, you know, multiple times because uh-huh. it's it's so fascinating to see sort of how was it originally framed towards the the consumer base of what it was going to be. And even like some of the early iPhone games that I remember, um, just felt like they were like experimenting with what you know what you could use the technology for and what that and we you know we're not doing now. I remember like one of the first games being like a labyrinth, you know where you could you know move your phone and the ball felt like it was moving oh, one direction yeah. or another, you know, and now I mean like you know the number one game is like you know candy crush it's like a it's a it's a bejeweled ripoff and you know <laughs> yeah. and it it doesn't really utilize the the form of the phone itself, but it is interesting to think about how we were originally. Thinking about how to take take advantage of some of the the new, the new pieces of technology that we have at our disposal.
1: Yeah, yeah, and what yeah, what sort of what function they serve is where, because the I think the evolution that's happening now, and I don't know how much you read about. I don't read a lot about this, but the Internet of Things, that whole concept yeah. of the Internet yeah. of Things, which is you know, fascinating and terrifying, kind of all at the yeah, same totally. time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because you've got. Um, because you've got all these things that are essentially uh, monitoring, right, what right. you're doing, and at the and interacting with you. Which, of course, they but they don't. This is something that Douglas Rushkoff writes about. They don't really exist in time. They exist in relationship to what you do with them. So, yeah. like, you have to. They're not sentient. They're not living things. They're you know they react based on the stimulus and the input you put into them. So the Internet of Things is is sort of like built in reactive to start out. Yeah. Um, and you know the the fact that that that's growing at the same time that there's this, um, over the last couple of weeks, this discussion about a complete reconsideration of what Facebook is so that it's not, you know, what made it work in a lot of ways was the open architecture, but the open architecture was going to be the death of it because of how it conflicted with privacy and, and all of that. So, so there's going to be a fairly large, because there's so many people involved in just that one software interface you know how is that how is the attempt to make that a more secure location on the planet you know, sort of biosphere three, <laughs> or at least the fantasy projection of it. How is yeah. how is the evolution of that going to change how we interact and use with it?
0: Yeah, I was so one of the the people that was at this uh, workshop was a guy named Dave Cormier, and he actually blogged this idea while we were at the retreat. But he was basically saying that you know technology doesn't ruin technology; people ruin technology, and you know the the fact is 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 once. Well, as he puts it, as once jerks figure out that, that that the social media space is a space that they can inhabit uh, and find leadership from and use it as an opportunity to troll other people, it doesn't you know it doesn't really matter. So yeah. so um, you know I don't I don't know if, if Facebook or Twitter or any of these really stand a chance of being able to like reorg themselves in a way that eliminates that type of person from existing within the space. You know, uh, and
1: right, but does I I think the question becomes: Is there enough of a corrective mechanism? mechanism to stop them from destroying it right Right.
0: and i i I, and my my best guess is there's not you know they'll 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 find a way the the best thing you can do is sort of run and hide for a little bit Uh and they'll eventually find that platform i think
1: there's you know there's there's a i think there is I'll, I'll give you a slightly optimistic version of of that because I agree with you that those it's very hard because of the particularly if there's a financial motivation right. to destroy those spaces, yeah. but you know then there's Wikipedia you know and Wikipedia survives all of the trolling and all of the attempts to damage it, and um, right and, and,
0: and so and so it, yeah and to that point, uh, when Wikipedia is one of the most openly architected platforms you know in existence. And that's not exactly the thing that makes it work, right? It is the community and it is the people that, that, uh, that, that, Put a fairly strict regulation on what you know, what, how, how the the platform should be utilized. Right,
1: and uh, the the theory that Cass Sunstein used in his book *Infotopia*, we have talked about this before, was as long as there were a larger number of people who wanted it to work versus yeah. the number of people who wanted to break it, yeah. it was going to work. Yeah, there you go. And and the math of that to me is really appealing. You know, yeah. it's because there's been so much talk lately about, you know, the amount of um, bot-generated or intentionally destructive stuff in the social media sphere. And, you know, again, there's this like imaginary tipping point where it's going to go from more people want it to work to more people want to exploit it and destroy it. Yeah. And it'd, it'd be really sad, you know, totally. sad if if uh, if all that potential and I'm not a I'm not a techno utopian at all. I mean, I think that these technologies always have negative consequences and we are never, never, ever any good at anticipating what those negative consequences are going to be. Right. So we're always playing catch up with trying to figure out what's the impact of, of the technologies around. I mean, when I, when I teach about this stuff, one of the things that I always like to focus on um, is pictures of dead people. You know, Mm. pictures of dead people are a really, if you think about the scope of human experience, that's a really weird thing because, or, you know, actually moving images of dead people, even worse, because now you have to take these two things that are mutually exclusive and try to make sense out of them together. Mm. And of course, we find our solutions for living with it on a day to day basis and getting through the grief or whatever else we might need to emotionally to get through it. But the consequences of that are. Are still you, kind of beyond do you what mean, we understand
0: when you say pictures of dead people, are you talking about a picture of someone who is deceased in the photo or just a picture of someone who has since died
1: uh it could be i mean it could be either because there was a phase historically where people took photographs of dead relatives. that was just something yeah. you did when if you had a child die, you had a sitting and you would dress the 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 child's body up and right. take pictures of it um but there's also how. The the existence of those images affect our memories, and a lot of people have written yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm, so I'm,
0: pictures of people that are no longer yeah, right, yeah, right yeah. Yeah. Like
1: watch a movie from the 1930s. Gotcha. Guess what? They're yeah. all dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's this really weird thing that that in one way some people could say suspends the notion of death or transforms it mm-hmm. into you know what the de- what the relationship is between presence and absence. Um, uh, you know, it's really nice to have in some way. I'm always there. There was a scene in uh, the John Carpenter film Starman. I don't know if you ever saw that, but uh, Jeff Bridges plays basically a guy who dies, but then his body becomes re-inhabited by an alien. And – uh, his wife. the the opening of the film is after the guys died, and his wife is sitting watching old video of of the dead, or I guess it would have been film actually, of the dead husband, and she's just sitting there like drinking and crying, and then he shows up at the front door. You know, his body does anyway, but it's a completely inhabited by an alien who doesn't really understand hmm. human life at all. So it's a great film that that raises all those issues about yeah. both life and death, but then the idea of of alien and familiar kind of being. In yeah conflict with each other too.
0: well I've thought about this um but you know particularly living within a moment where we photograph everything and I've every, been from every angle yeah and so like you know my uh we went on a uh <clears throat> a vacation to Walt Disney world I don't know a couple of years ago now right mm-hmm. um and I imagine both of my daughters were too young to really have a, a strong memory of anything that we did. Um, but yet we have photos of everything that they did and they act like they clearly remember it. And so, you know, I'm interested in like, what do they actually remember? And what is a memory that's been constructed through photographs? You know, right. this they, they think is a memory, but really all that they remember is that they've seen a photograph showing them within the space. Uh-huh. And so they've connected that as, Oh yeah, I, I, I must remember that so
1: that's yeah it's it's there's just so many interesting implied problems it's funny you mentioned disney i because you know there's this legendary story that's mostly not true that about disney's (laughs) body being frozen and stored somewhere you know kind of uh a waiting for the point where whatever it was that that offed him was going to be curable so which eventually becomes the woody allen movie uh sleeper
0: (laughs) well well, speaking of uh, curable um, did you catch the announcement that uh, Alex Trebek has stage four
1: cancer? I did. It's yeah. It's. Uh, have you
0: have you watched the video or have him saying it?
1: I I heard it. I heard yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Be-
0: it's it's really interesting. Uh-huh. It's it's powerful. What did you get from it? Um, you know he so he makes he makes a statement in which he says I'm uh, I I'm doing this because I want to be as open and honest and transparent as possible, which I think is really interesting. Uh, The fact that he did it, and it wasn't a quote, to a journalist, right. I think is really interesting. He wanted to go straight to, uh, you know, his constituents, whatever you want to call them, and sort of deliver this message himself and making sure that it wasn't something that any came from anybody else. Uh, and then he basically, you know, and from what I've read online, the, the survival rate of someone with the, the type of cancer and stage that he has is like nine percent. Um, so it's it's incredibly low. But basically, he then after sort of delivering the news, makes a request for, you know, thoughts, prayers, um, but, but also just saying like, we, we're going to beat this together, you know, like this is gonna be, like, I, we're, we're, I'm going to beat this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just does so in this sort of, you know, direct emphatic way that I think is really powerful, uh, and incredibly moving. So,
1: well, um, if I could, uh, add to that and shift just a little bit, uh, the other, the other, uh, consequential thing that happened was Luke Perry, yeah. uh, which was, uh, I happen to be a fan of Riverdale. Yeah. Which is definitely the happiest, trashiest, worst <laughs> show on television that you absolutely have to watch. Uh, and Luke Perry was a, a big part of the show. He was, in a lot of ways, he was kind of the moral center of the adults. Which, and if you watch Riverdale, it's, explaining it would pale in comparison to how the show actually functions because it is such an internally satirical picture of. Exactly what kind of show it is. Uh, But then uh, Luke Perry, unfortunately, had a massive stroke on February 27th this year, and he uh, died from the complications of that on March 4th. And, you know, there's a couple of shocking things about that, of course, because he's Luke Perry or as we like to call him around my house, Sideshow Luke Perry, because that was, you know, Simpsons episode, mm. he actually was working for Krusty the Clown, and he became Sideshow Luke Perry <laughs> for a short period of time. I think being fired out of a cannon, as I recall. Was Bring role. this back around to yeah. Trebek, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're way out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's going. It's, it's really
1: looping the tree now. Um, but but just the idea of, you know, I mean, he was 52, so he was fairly young, and what he represented culturally, Yeah, um, I think that's what's in, in the same way. Alex Trebek represents this kind of like serious, intelligent... You know, and he had his little weird thing of the Me Too movement that he didn't really kind of get in an interview and stuff like that. But, um, but you know, he's a central role. He's central in my life because uh, m- my family members and I play Jeopardy on Alexa all the time.
0: Oh, have you mentioned this. Yeah. yeah. And
1: and so Alex Trebek is right there. Yeah. You know, they paid it. They wrote him a check and he did all of his little bits and pieces and then the rest of it's all done by Alexa. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what the, what the ramifications of that are. Are. And also to see with Luke Perry's passing what the, you know what what that means in terms of thinking about our whole kind of media environment and because yeah. it's you know because of the expansion of celebrity in the era of television it means that these things are happening at a more accelerated pace right right so well,
0: it, jeopardy is one of those interesting things where. Um, I, I, I think it, we, we get to this place with specific type of media where it almost just feels like a right, right? Like, like the, the Jeopardy just for many people has just always existed and it's always existed in the exact same format forever um it's always been three rounds it's always been hosted by trebek it's always been yeah. well
1: actually the i think the original host was art fleming well I i'm think saying v- for a lot of people right, right yeah. yeah
0: their 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 assumption is that jeopardy has just always existed as this thing that yeah. that, that happens and therefore because of it almost feels like it has no day, day-to-day cultural con you know uh Uh, consequence to it, right? Right. Because it's just a thing that happens. And then you hear this news and uh, all of a sudden... Uh, it, it feels like you know one of your pillars has has been sh- shaken just a tiny bit by like an earthquake, mm-hmm. and it really does impact everybody on some 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 level. Certainly, some more than others, but it feels like everyone has some kind of uh, some kind of relationship with with that type of television.
1: Yeah, and I can see where it would be for you because you are a, uh, as I recall, a game show addict. I love game you shows. Are, you are into the game show sphere. Uh, so. yeah.
0: In fact, in fact. Uh, Katie and I just recently started watching Jeopardy nightly um, Um, because the weird thing about game shows is you can't find... You know, you can't you you can't watch today's episode of Price Is Right or Jeopardy or uh, Wheel of Fortune in the same way you could watch you know the, the 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 major shows that are on a network show through a streaming channel. You right. know, um, so for those who are f- pure streaming, unless you're watching like the live TV, you know that this this is a type of programming you might not even know we still exist. Um, but we have found <laughs> someone who. Does a daily upload of on to YouTube that episode of Jeopardy! Oh, that's awesome! And we've been watching it, and it's this crazy thing that's happening. I don't know if it's ever happened before, I need to look it up. But they're doing Team Jeopardy, Uh in which they have put all stars. They did a draft, and they drafted their teams out, and you can play Fantasy Jeopardy, which is, <laughs> it kind of blows my mind uh, that That's you can right. do this. Uh, but they've been That's basically amazing. doing this tournament where uh-huh. there's some team strategy, and who's going to play round one, who's going to do round two, who's going to do final Jeopardy, um, and, uh, yeah, and it's so, all, all culminating soon. So here's what, here soon. my
1: question for you. When you're watching Jeopardy, do you say the answers out loud? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay, good. Just wanted I mean, to check.
0: I mean, if I can, if, if I can get it out fast, Enough. That's that's the problem. Is you know the 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 connection. So so Jeopardy's you know all. I mean it's it's a game of trivia knowledge, right? And the people who play it just have an insane amount of wealth and knowledge. But it's also like a like a physical game of who can get to the trigger fast enough and get it out. Uh, And the ability for those people to have both of those strengths particularly like, like in a game that's like the tournament that's happening right now which is the the cream of the crop like the best jeopardy players ever literally uh-huh. the best ones are playing their ability to physically ring in Almost instantaneously, and then be able to shoot it out of their mouth immediately, and right. like, and and you have that feeling like, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Sort of what I was doing earlier with the Papert book, you know, yeah, I, yeah. it's it's there, I just can't recall it fast enough.
1: Do you think hell is where you're, like somebody's rung in before you, and you keep pressing your button madly, <laughs> and nothing happens? <laughs> <laughs> it was like watching that on the show when somebody... You, you do feel clearly, bad yeah, for them, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. When the person, could it, it, it just like they never got the buzzer part of the game. Right.
1: You're, you're waiting for them to yell out, wait, I know this! Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's 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 very funny. And
0: and they feel like they look dumb because they you know they they didn't recruit any money, and then they finally ring in and it's wrong, <laughs> and then you feel so bad. Oh man, yeah. like, is there a worse feeling than not making it to final Jeopardy? You know, yeah. like like being in the negative going into the yeah. final round, just like knowing it was not your
1: day. They have a, uh, a a similar, although not the same kind of question and answer talk show on National Public Radio that airs on the weekends. And it's actually funny because I was listening last weekend and they asked a question and the guy said for his answer, what is blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so the host said, this isn't Jeopardy, but we'll accept that answer. (laughs) So it's really funny how much that's permeated.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting part of Jeopardy is the nuance of how you have to answer it and whether, you know, oftentimes they'll correct answers. And now that it's a team tournament, they've been doing these like cutaways where they'll go to the green room and show the team sort of strategizing as to how much Mm -hmm. should we we uh, bet, you know, on Final Jeopardy, which I think is a fascinating yeah. point of the game that never really gets touched on within the show itself. Is just, you know, how to know when to go for a true daily double. Yeah, I think the it.
1: stakes just need to be higher. Think, think so? Yeah, I think I think that uh, that there should actually be. I'm kidding, of course, but, but <laughs> I'm kind of imagining something that's sort of halfway between. Battle Royale, the Hunger Games, and Jeopardy, yeah. right? Where you actually get to take out your victory on the losers. That, yeah, yeah, right. Wait, or, no, that's professional football, sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and it's fun It's fun to watch people, um, you know, watching these shows where you put people in high pressure situations and then you give them super simple trivia questions, you know, and then their inability to recall it just based off of their, you know, they're in this. Uh, heightened state of fear. I think it's really fascinating yeah. to, to watch. So, maybe that's what it needs to be is uh is is like Jeopardy and American Ninja Warrior all put together, you know, at the same time. So, um we're running short on time. Anything else?
1: Not really. No, okay. I think we I think that's where we are in terms of the uh the abyss glancing over at the apocalyptic state of things. I think you know, there's enough there to keep us entertained till actually, you know, Biodome 3 comes along. Yeah. Yeah, I'm and happy we'll, to be back at Biosphere One. Yeah, it's it's. Good. I keep on saying biodome. Is that is that? That's the Polish? a movie. Yeah, that's, that's a movie. the movie. see, this is what happens in my head. Is yeah. That, and I, the, I so I'd be the person on Jeopardy barking out like you know <laughs> I would answer the wrong Baldwin or something <laughs> like that. I'd say, Steven, no, it's Luke. oh you know. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, that's it from us. You take care. Have a good week.
1: Thank you too.